Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a young kid having an impact on your life? I think Nike. I ran track in, in high school, but it had nothing to do with functional aspects of the shoe. There was just something about the designs of Nike shoes back then, which were nowhere near as large a number as they are today or as varied in, in number. But I, I just remember something about that brand and those shoes making me feel like somehow I was more attractive to girls at that age and, and more hip to, to the guys in the class than any shoes I wore before, which, as I recall, were Puma and uh, Converse. Remember Converse, uh, wasn't the all- it was Converse also, they're like felt or something. Yep, <laughs> it swayed. Right. Yeah, uh, and, and then Nike came out with like these shiny white yeah. leather things, basketball shoes, I'm sure they were. But yeah, Nike for sure. And, and I, I still uh, love what they do there and have gotten to know their head of marketing quite well. It's a, a great company and a great customer of Delta's too. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Tim Mapes, the SVP and chief marketing and communications officer at Delta, one of my all-time favorite brands, which we will talk about. Delta is, of course, the Atlanta-based worldwide airline leader. 300 destinations in 50 countries, 15,000 daily departures, they're 75,000 people plus, take care of 200 million customers a year. Sales were about 35 billion in their latest fiscal year. My guest Tim is a graduate of the University of Georgia, where he studied advertising. He began his career on the ad agency side, including four years at BBDO. Back in 1992, Tim made one of the smartest career moves ever. He joined Delta and has held 14 roles since then, working his way to the top job in marketing and communications at the top airline in the world. Tim has been CMO for a whopping 14 years. This is my conversation with a guy who truly believes culture and people are everything Tim makes. Tim, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I am so looking forward to this. I am a huge fan of your brand, of you, of your team. In fact, I am often asked, 
what my favorite brands are that I really admire. You guys are always at the top of that list. So thank you, Tim, wow. for joining our podcast in the middle of a very busy summer. Well, thank you. Thank you for those incredibly generous comments. Uh, we work very hard to, to earn that level of, uh, of preference and loyalty and those, those kind comments. So on behalf of 75,000 people here who are busting their hump every day, I will not only uh, say thank you to you, but I'll pass those comments along. That means a great deal to the team here at Delta. Well, Tim, this category that you have been in for 30 years, have you always been a fan of travel and exploration going back to your childhood? <laughs> where, where, where did your passion yeah. for what you do start? Yeah. So no is the answer. Um, I, so my passion was for advertising. Uh, I grew up watching a TV show called Bewitched, where oh, Darren yeah. got to go to lunch and drink martinis with Larry Tate and <laughs> then come home to Sam at night. And you have this beautiful bride and uh, he got to play with art boards and talk business. But it was through the, the this kind of creative artistic world. And so I wanted to do that. I, in fact, even when I went to college, I didn't know you actually could do that or how to go do that. It certainly was not travel. I uh, I grew up in a family of, uh, of very low means. In fact, I still had college debt when uh, I met my wife at 30, uh, so paying my own way through school. But I was that clear that I wanted to do it. But I, I had no preconceived notions that travel meant anything. Like, in fact, <laughs> this I shouldn't even admit this maybe, but it's like the college I went to was the University of Georgia. And I went mm -hmm. to the University of Georgia because it was like, you know how when you grow up in a public school, you go to the school that's near you? Well, I did that in elementary school. I did it in high school. And then when it came time to college, to go to college, I really, and I'm being 100% honest, I didn't really know you could go to schools that were Harvard, Princeton, Yale. I wouldn't have gotten into any of those anyway, but uh, I kind of just naturally went to what was close. I had no perspective, no vision, no knowledge about travel and, and the role travel plays. So that's, talk about humble beginnings. I guess that's a, a starting in a hole. I walked to my grammar school, a parochial school. I walked to my high school. I also went to college close to home. I didn't take my first flight until my parents gave me a couple hundred bucks to go to Europe after graduation. And I made that couple hundred bucks work for nine weeks. <laughs> and I did not fly Delta on that flight. It was some, oh, weird airline. <laughs> but, but anyway, my first flight was 22 in my life. How about yourself? When was your first flight? So I grew up in Chicago. My parents one time flew us out to see my mom's sister in, uh, in San Diego. And I'm sure we spent a lot of time out there when we were there. I was young. I'm fairly certain it was American Airlines. Uh, I can remember red, white, and blue. Uh, so uh, I, too, flew somebody uh, inferior to Delta. Uh, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, that, that was my that probably first flight. And not again until really probably junior year in college. And it wasn't as exotic as Europe. It was uh, a domestic trip. So, Well, before going too far into this chat, we're getting to know you already. But I want to go through a couple of your travel habits to get to know you a bit better, Tim. So the first one is, what is your favorite in-flight snack and drink? Almonds. Um, they're healthy. Uh, I try to go low carb, and, and those are a good carb and a, and a good uh, source uh, of what almonds provide. But it's, you know, it's funny. We have a lot of different things. I flew back on us last night from LaGuardia, and now we have pistachios and, and these more ex exotic things. Which is always fun. I, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of our customers prefer Biscoffs and everybody says they want, you know, fresh, organic, these, these healthy options. 
Uh, and yet Pringles and Snickers seem to do <laughs> remarkably well on our flights sometimes. So I think people have this great feeling that, you know, Starbucks used to talk about themselves as a third place. It's not home and it's not work. I think airlines and airplanes are some of the last places that are like that third place because even now Starbucks, everybody's in there working. It doesn't feel the same as, as perhaps it used to, and I'm a huge Starbucks fan. But planes are the one place when you know you can connect if you want to, or you can choose not to. You can have a drink, you can sleep, you can read a book, you can watch a movie. Uh, but snacks, I think, are increasingly reflecting both that need for comfort uh, as well as trying new things. And we certainly try to be a vanguard and help folks discover new brands or experience new items when we can. What's your favorite in-flight ritual? You talked about movies, books, so on. So what, what do you like to do? What's your go-to ritual when you're on a flight of moderate length? Uh, sadly, uh, plug in all my devices into power sources and uh, you know, and see that I've got adequate power. <laughs> Quickly connect. That generally involves a phone and uh, an iPad. And uh, I typically have CNBC playing on the seatback screen in yeah. front of me with email coming in over my laptop or iPad and and then phone stuff, text, other things going on on the phone. So sadly, I, I think I've grown to, to reflect what most of our customers, it's funny as a, as a customer experience person, I used to walk up and down our planes and you know, marketers call it ethnographic research. It was simply for me observing what's going on with people. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons we chose to keep the seatback screens on our planes is exactly what I just mentioned, that there's no limit to the consumption activities of people, whether it is on a phone, an iPad, a laptop, or a seatback screen. And even when people are watching a movie or watching live news or a sporting event on the seatback screens on our flights, they're equally monitoring the phone and email and, and other things. And, you know, in some ways, it's a sad testimony that as a culture, we've that, you know, kind of stimulated and, and yet others, the productivity and the efficiency that that provides um, is, I think, one of the reasons people choose to fly us is there's immediate power. There's always Wi-Fi access. In fact, we're working to dial up that bandwidth mm -hmm. to allow streaming yep. uh, with, with more news coming in the, in the future there. Well, you describe me on your flights, so we have very similar <laughs> habits. H how many miles, Tim, have you flown on Delta? Oh, millions, millions. Uh, I've flown... I've flown three times in the past week, uh, one of those internationally to, uh, to Rome and, and, and back. I'm on a flight again tomorrow uh, to New Hampshire. And it's, it's, I think, for everything that COVID taught us of the value in staying put, uh, and I'm not suggesting, that, I mean, there was a lot of issues and problems with people being trapped and in quarantine uh, as well. You just look at China right now and you see evidence of mm -hmm. that. Uh, but I think for the 6, 12, 18 months of staying in one place, and, and we as Delta operated throughout and, and continued to fly for work, but for pleasure, there were just so few people, friends, relatives, what have you, wanting to get together that a lot of social things stopped. It's almost like a trampoline that went down in terms of volume that has now ex accelerated in the uptick. And honest to God, the first six months of this year, I have flown more this the January through June to the point that my wife and I actually sat down yesterday and said, okay, how are we going to take some of this stuff off the books for the second half of the year? It's just mm -hmm. so much. Um, and it's all enjoyable, but it's, it's, there's no downtime. And you know, I, I think that's what draws me to this idea of planes being a third place and the opportunity yep. to really be self-directed because you really, you used to be able to say, oh, I'm out of touch. I can't talk to my boss on the phone or, you know, now we're accessible 24 seven. And I'm not sure that's always a good thing. What are your most frequent destinations when you fly? 
we're lucky to have a uh, place at the Gulf Coast of Florida. Uh, so we get there a good bit. Uh, New York, Los Angeles, because of business uh, and a lot of the partners that we have the good fortune mm-hmm. of working with, American Express among them. Uh, so those, those are probably the biggest ones. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So listen, I was doing my research on you in prep for this podcast, and I really enjoyed it. And by the way, I was in the JFK Sky Club last weekend for about three hours between I was on an international trip heading back to Cincinnati. So I had a nice block of time in your beautiful club there to listen to you, to read about you. And two things really struck me about you, Tim. And I want to start with the first one. And that is, I don't know if I've, I've done about 200 podcast recordings with CMOs. And I don't think I've heard one of them speak as much about people and culture and big team, little me, and taking care of customers and employees, I haven't heard anyone use that language as frequently as you use it when I hear you speak and write. So Tim, I want you to go there with us, and I've heard you talk about this, but I want to go, I want you to go where, where this comes from. Was this part of how you were raised? Did this germinate before Delta? Did it, did it happen as, as you became more experienced at Delta and developed your way of thinking and being. So talk about where that comes from in Tim. Well, first of all, you're, you're very kind to, to pick up on that. And the, the roots and the origins of that are, are unique to this company uh, called Delta Airlines. Um, for starters, as, a, as somebody who went into advertising and you go to, when I was fortunate enough to learn you could actually do this for a living and went to, to study that in college, everything's around the USP and the, you know, the focus on the customer. In fact, I, I came out of college and was fortunate enough to go to work at Bozell Jacobs, Kenyon and Eckhart, whose tagline was close to the customer or closest to the customer. Um, and their entire orientation was around what it is customers want and how do we as a brand or as, a, as an entity, an organization, evolve to best serve the needs of that customer. And then went to BBDO uh, and similar, creatively driven agency, but mm-hmm. focusing on unique insights of the customer. Um, and then came to Delta. And, and Delta in the early stages had always been about the customer. But at its earliest stages, 95 years ago, CE Woman, the founder, had this idea that if we took better care of our people, Delta people would take better care of the customer. And, you know, it's such a simple idea. There's this great saying in the South that something says easy and does hard, right? And anybody yeah. can say that. In fact, a lot of people do say what you're ultimately onto. So it's not about the words. Um, Delta employs something here called servant leadership. And uh, we have Frank Blake, who's our chairman, former CEO of Home Depot, who had very much this mindset in in taking good care of the uh, frontline workers uh, wearing aprons at a Home Depot. 
uh, team members, I believe is the, the nomenclature or the terminology that they use. But it's also been a byproduct of the leaders I've had the privilege of serving under here because the legitimacy of the, of the not just the, the words, but the insight. Because it's fascinating to me, and this is to me the biggest transformation I've undergone personally and professionally at Delta. Because as I said, I came out of it as a marketer thinking it's all about the customer. And duh, it is if you're in CPG and, and other mm-hmm. stuff like that. But as a service business, it's increasingly not just a confidence I have, but a certainty I have that the vast majority of service businesses really do get it wrong. Um, Danny Meyer, a great close friend of Delta Airlines, is focused on this. You look at what he's uh, suggesting from a tipping standpoint and a compensation of of, uh, service people in, in their restaurants. It isn't that it's radical. It actually makes intuitive sense that, you know, it's it's hard to say to somebody, we actually care more about frontline Delta and people than we do our customers. And that sounds wrong even as you say it, right? And it's not that we care more. It's sequential, right? It's it's where do you place primary emphasis and when in the process? So when we're sourcing talent, it's firefighters, it's former members of the U.S. military, it's first responders, it's educators. It's people who find this inherent nobility in serving others. So you already bring this DNA into the ecosystem, but then it's you as a leader. What are you doing to enable, to empower, to give these people who you believe strongly enough should wear your brand on themselves every day and our frontline people, pilots, flight attendants, res agents, ACS agents, airport customer service agents do, right? They are in our uniform, our brand. Um, so if you've believed in them enough to do that, to hire them, then how are you helping support them? And what's been fascinating to watch with COVID is if somebody's got to worry about them testing positive, their spouse getting it from them, their elderly parent or an immunocompromised child getting it, their mind is on that, right? It's naturally on that. We're human. It's not on serving somebody who might be standing on the other side of the counter. Uh, and this is a long-winded way of just simply saying it's a duh but it's, it's one of those things that just organizationally, it's, it's got to be evident in the behaviors, not just by a marketing guy or an HR guy or a PR guy. It's, you know, of course, it's the CEO. But for us, thankfully, it's the board chairman, as I said, with Frank Blake, Ed Bastian, the biggest believer in this, Richard Anderson, who preceded him, Jerry Grinstein, who preceded him. There's always been this belief that if we truly care for Delta people better, better, not, not good or as good, they will truly go out of their way and be freed up to take care of the customer. I love that, Tim. And I often get asked why I am so loyal to Delta and why I love Delta and why I talk about them a lot because I do. And I said, listen, they have great planes and great lounges and nice food and all that. But every person I meet at Delta, I feel that they love what they do. Their intentions are good. They're honest with me. They're human. And, you know, things happen when you travel, but I always feel like at Delta, the intentions are always wonderful. And, and it's really hard to build a culture like that. So I want to go there a little bit with you, Tim, 77,000 people or so. I'd like you to help our listeners understand how do you lead to live that day in and day out? So you're doing it. I know it. But what, what could we learn from you? How you spend your time? What you value? 
Yeah. What are your priorities? Yeah. What you work on? Well, somebody once told me that the first rule of presenting is is know your audience. Uh, and, and we go out of our way to spend a great deal of time with our employees, our frontline employees. In fact, we have this thing called Velvet where about seven or 800 employees, frontline employees voluntarily come into a, a location and, and we as a leadership team go out and, and speak with them. And more importantly, listen, right? Because we, we, we almost talk to them as investors because that's in fact what they are. And, and our ability to sustain economic prosperity and, and a yield premium to the industry and things like that is directly correlated to their degree of engagement and pride in the company for all the reasons that, that you were nice enough to point out and, and to mention. Um, and I'll give you a great example, and then I'll go deeper in answer to your question. I, I flew back from LaGuardia last night, which hopefully you mentioned JFK. If you have a chance to go to the new LaGuardia terminal, it's unclear to me that you're <laughs> that you're in New York. It is so damn different. And so I expected it to be beautiful, and I knew it would be great. But I had no idea it would be as big and as beautiful and as nice um, as it is from a human factors, but, but, but a host of other things. But so in the span of about four weeks, we opened LAX uh, preliminarily and then LaGuardia. And one of the things Ed said when, when we had him on the media was the employees of Delta deserve these facilities. Of course the mm -hmm. customers do. But like, in answer to your question, a lot of people would jump past the fact that our employees, that's their office. That's where they show up every day. Do they have a sense of pride? Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel this is a reflection of them and their professionalism and their commitment to service excellence? Because if the facility doesn't convey that, if their uniforms don't convey that, if their compensation and the communication don't convey that, then guess what? It's all a bunch of hollow crap. But the answer to your question is when everything is predicated on conveying that, like leadership behavior, stopping, introducing yourselves, thanking people for what it is they do. I speak at something, we have this thing called B-Day, first day, uh, kind of like your birthday at Delta, but your first day of employment. Every leader goes and, and speaks to classes and welcomes them and says how valuable they are and important they are in this ecosystem. So literally, whether it's recruiting, whether it's that B-Day, whether it's how we frame the messaging in all of our communications, that it's we, it's never I, that it's, uh, as you said, big team, little me. Um, there's, there's an authenticity that is evident in that. And I'll tell you that one of the interesting things, because when Delta merged with Northwest uh, in an acquisition, how Delta chose which leaders to come into and retain, some from Northwest, some from Delta, there was a filter on the very thing we're talking about. Not how good are you technically proficient because some people who were frankly the best in the industry at what they did, didn't make the cut because they weren't at best in the industry at supporting culture and driving and protecting and, and uh, propagating what it is we believe is important in this company, which is people, whether they're our own or whether those that we have the privilege of serving. And, and so it isn't technical capability. When we do interviews, it's you, it's a given. This isn't a teaching hospital, right? You've got to be good at what you do or that's not even a consideration. So it's presumed you're great at what you do if you've made it into our interview process. But then it's about how you talk about and interact with stories and, and leading of teams and your degree of intellectual curiosity, not about how you think, but about how your team members think. Um, and thankfully, you know, look, we're not perfect. <laughs> and we're clearly, 
Clearly not. Uh, and we're in a tough industry that's risk intensive mm -hmm. and our planes are going 525 miles an hour, 30,000 feet over the earth. And, and as I tell our frontline employees, and the great thing is people are worried about how fast we get them a Diet Coke, not any of the <laughs> former things I just said, yeah. right? So we do it incredibly well, but it's a big part of the leadership culture here. And when leaders are really good at technical things, but not at the soft skill people stuff, they stick out like a nail sticking out of a deck and, you know, one or two stub toes and those people uh, aren't here any longer. So that, too, it's the downline consequence of somebody who doesn't behave in a manner that we believe is consistent that leads to this really being reinforced all the time. So it's not just comms, much more important that it's actions, but it's sustained actions at every interaction we're able to have with, with folks. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What's your counsel, Tim, to other CMOs who would like to genuinely up their game on culture and people and their organizations? What would be the two or three pithy pieces of advice you would leave them with? I'd give one word, listen, right? I mean, the, the answers in a service business are rarely in the headquarters. They're out where the customers are. They're out where the people are that are serving those customers. And, and I always jokingly tell people, it's like a maitre d' at a restaurant. You can tell if the person gives a rip about when they come over and say, how was your meal? You know within 30 seconds about, is the person legit? Do they genuinely care or is it some rote thing? And yeah, you yeah, might get a yeah. free drink or a, an appetizer or a, a dessert out of it. Uh, it's the authenticity, the genuineness that is inherent in humans that each of us can know when the other person across from them is authentic. And, and so listening with a genuine intent to do something about it, 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 I don't think that's secret sauce. I just think it's the execution of that that's lacking in, uh, in too many service businesses. Mm -hmm. So I said there were two areas that struck me in my research on you, Tim, back in the JFK Sky Club. The second is your communication skills. I mean, they are outstanding, and our listeners have already gathered that so far in this podcast. And I've observed you for quite some time and always thought you're a damn good communicator. So again, I want to ask you about this one. Where did this germinate? How did you, de <laughs> how did you develop? Because you're very good at conveying ideas and thoughts and priorities. In fact, when COVID hit, there was a meeting with your CEO and yourself and, and P&G CEO, and it was a dialogue about how we're getting through COVID. And they invited all PNG employees and ex-employees to join. And I joined that, listened to you, listened to your CEO. Again, a fabulous exchange. But I want you to talk about where did this germinate? Well, it's, you're, again, very kind. Uh, and God help me as chief communications officer if I wasn't <laughs> uh, somewhat, somewhat, proficient, somewhat proficient at the thing I'm now responsible for. Um, the, you know, it's funny. I hate public speaking. I'm terrified of it. I'm like anybody else. I'm nervous that will the audience like me? Do, do people think less of you if you stumble or, yeah, right? I mean, all of that is we're, we're people, we're humans. Um, but one of the things I learned in, in school and in college was the, the ability to be persuasive starts with preparation. So nervousness is a natural quality in any of us, right? You're about to go out on stage and for us talk to six or 700 employees who you deeply care 
uh, about the message that they're going to see from you or media or God knows. I mean, we're shaping corporate reputation and a brand for a you know, $50 billion global enterprise. Um, I try not to think about those things. I try to go back to preparation and what it is that matters most. And I, I go back to first rule of presenting, know your audience. How do they come at it? Like, what are, is somebody excited about being in a meeting or are they resentful about being in a meeting? Is it a topic they expect to be dry and boring? And how, if so, how do you make it interesting? And, and again, I go back to listening because if you come at these things with a genuine and a sincere interest in understanding somebody else's point of view, which by the way, is one of the greatest things travel provides, right? You could be considerably more empathetic to the people of Ukraine if you've been there. You can be considerably more understanding about what a mudslide in Haiti means if you've been there or been to places like that. Uh, or whether it's economic disparity or racism or ageism, or pick one, right? It's like, if you've walked it, you know, CE Woman, our founder again, had this other great line, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the person on the other side of the counter, like empathy empathy, right? How hard is that right? as a service business? So from a communication standpoint, I think it's just a natural outgrowth of that to say, hey, I, I get it. By, by the way, I started at nothing from an economic standpoint, you know, bumped around, was lucky enough to get into a college, knew I had a passion and an enthusiasm for it. But if, if I have any ability in terms of communications, it stems from doing, trying to do more about listening you never know that on this podcast because I'm doing 90% of the talking, but I, I tried to <laughs> Well, you listen. should be, Tim. Well, right. um, I, you know, it's the answers. I'll let you interview me at the end. Okay. How's that? <laughs> I hope to get to do that. <laughs> but, I, you know, the answers are, are not in any one of us. One of the things I share with my team here is none of us is as smart as all of us. And I learn every single day, every single day, something from some brilliant person on our team that like in a million years, I wouldn't have thought about, right? It, but it's that key of what if the person didn't feel courage to talk up? Does the most junior person feel as able to speak up in a meeting? A lot of them have some of the best ideas, whether it's in social media or stuff, I don't even begin to understand, right? So it's trying to break down those barriers, listen, and, and then create an environment where people feel valued, but but importantly, feel empowered to, to bring the best of themselves uh, because, you know, if we were all homogenous, imagine an airline trying to serve people in 60 countries, all the languages, all the cultures. Mm -hmm. It has to have difference um, and, and diversity uh, of thought of, of every other dimension of diversity, too. You know, we're spending a bit of time on communication here, and obviously it has to follow with action. But I have seen poor communication torpedo so many careers. And I don't care what your business line is or where you are. How do you coach this in your people to be great communicators? You are a service business. You're communicating every day with all sorts of people. How do you ensure that the people of Delta are great communicators? Because I think that's so important in life and in business and in brand building all around. Yeah, well, and again, I'd be, it simply would be inaccurate to suggest we've, got, we've cracked the code on all this stuff. But, but here's what I know. Uh, we want loyalty from you as a customer. What's inherent in that equation then is that we demonstrate loyalty to you as a customer. And, and you saw evidence of this, whether it was blocking middle seat during COVID or protecting mm -hmm. medallion status and rolling over miles and things. Like you gotta be loyal and it's a two, loyalty is a, a two way street. But in answer to your question around communications, 
to me, it starts with trust, which requires honesty and, and transparency. And, you know, airline pricing is the stuff of Saturday Night Live jokes where, you know, $99 could be sitting next to $999 in the past. That's not transparent. That's not fair. That's not honest. And there's a lot of reasons why those prices could exist. But from a, from a communication standpoint, it's to me, it starts to simply like, what is going on here? Let's be honest. Because it's funny to when the worst things happen in, in air travel, flight cancellations or delays or weather or air traffic control, what's interesting is the most frequent travelers are the least likely to really see problems in that. A, they know they're going to be reaccommodated well. Um, so it's everybody else that goes haywire. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the frequent business travelers and the most loyal people tend to understand exactly what's about to happen. Uh, but again, we got to serve you know, 250 people on a 757 to ensure that everybody feels a part of that solution. Um, so timely information. We try to train our pilots to say if, if there has been a delay and it's been more than 13 minutes, somebody needs to be on the PA sharing what's going on. Are we waiting for baggage? Are we waiting for a connecting customer or a part or whatever it would be? Same thing from a flight attendant standpoint. If there's a delay or weather or like, what is it? What's the cause? And, and be as forthright with that as possible. And you know, here's the amazing part about that. All of us are armed with a phone right now that's got access to information. So the days of saying, oh, it's weather, when it's Jacksonville air traffic control is are well past us, right? So people have access to almost perfect information. And now things that happen on airplanes, God knows we saw it during COVID, passenger misbehavior and misconduct, that stuff's viewed shot on a video, posted and put out in social media before our flight attendants have even been able to write up a report and try to get, you know restore order in some cases. Uh, so communication that, that's true, that's honest, that's transparent, and that again gets back into the root cause. The reason somebody's concerned about a delay is they may have a connecting flight or a cancellation is they may have a funeral or a wedding or a, these aren't just viewed the world to our world, the flight operation. It's Take it out to the totality of the customer relationship. What else is going on in their life? Why would they have a great sense of tension uh, around some of these issues? And how do we demonstrate sensitivity to those? Let's flip to your CMO role for a moment here, Tim. You've been CMO of Delta since 2008, the year of your merger with Northwest. You've had increased responsibilities along the way, but you've been a CMO now for 14 years. That's one of the longest tenures of anyone out there in this role. So I'd like you to speak a little bit about what do you attribute that to? <laughs> the largesse of the CEOs of the company during the time <laughs> I've been here, I think. No, I'm the, sure it's more than that. Uh, well, it, it's um, what we're talking about is, is strategically critical to the success of a service business. Uh, airlines tend to be operationally driven. You better hope they are because safety is, is job one. And to the extent they're anything other than operationally driven, they're financially oriented, right? See Carl Icahn and the history of you know, airline financiers. They're rarely brand driven, right? Branson was mm-hmm. probably one of the first people to, to come into the space and say, oh, it's really about brands and then let ops go to the back of the queue, I think was one of his verbatim quotes. And there's others, certainly. I don't mean to diminish the contributions of other leaders over time. But, but branding and communication in our space, it has never really been the, oh, this is this person's on a fast track because they're really good at this. So, you know, I, I think what you have is leaders who don't necessarily always fully grasp the contribution some of this has. I will tell you, 
Ed um, is one of those leaders who fundamentally not only understands, but actively supports and more importantly, invests in whether it's internal communications to our customers or our employees to SkyMiles members. Hopefully you've seen a number of his notes to you as, as a customer to, to the media. He's tireless and, and openly willing to, to speak when we say, hey, can we get some time with you and fill in the blank with this media outlet? Um, and I will tell you at these internal employee meetings, he lines up and will do a selfie with every single employee who wants to. And if you ask him the highest use of his time in those seven or 800 frontline employee meetings, he would tell you it's that. Because what those employees will then do is send it to their social media networkers. Here's me with Ed in Cincinnati or Orlando or wherever it would happen to be. And he's that way. I mean, Delta's always had an open door policy, but he's open life policy um, and, and quite interested in knowing those employees. In fact, what's amazing is how often somebody will say, oh, you work at Delta, do you know so-and-so? And And to your point, we have 78,000 employees. Some of it's, I've been here a while. But the the number of times I actually know the person they're talking about is shocking. It's it's incomprehensible, actually, when you think about how big a company this is. But I, I do tell people, we're like the world's largest small company because it does feel entrepreneurial. It does feel family uh, and it does because there's a tightness and a, and a band of brothers feeling of we're all in this together. In fact, we say we win together. Unfortunately, we all sacrifice and lose together, too, when things are bad. Uh, but we win together and we certainly fight and, and hunt as a pack to the extent we can. So what's been the biggest change in your role, Tim, since taking it in 2008? Data. Um, you know, I, I came from a world where big idea, big creative execution, the great 60 double page spread or, you know, whatever, you know, an ad unit was to, you know, it's, it's it, a lot of that still matters. Right. Uh, brand as well as, as performance based marketing. But it's data. I, I mean, it's our ability to know you, Jim, what it is you prefer. And I'm not just talking about what drink you like in the morning or in the evening or what content you consume and things like that. It's like genuinely know your life to the extent that it's not creepy for us to do that. And whether it's the relationship with American Express that allows us to review record of charges and the types of places you frequent and what types of, uh, whether it's restaurants or, or travel that you enjoy. Um, again, not we can never go all the way to a creepy extreme because then it's stalking. But the level of ability to better serve you through knowledge of certain things, even what we serve up in terms of imagery, because we do multivariate testing on Delta.com, the words, the images. You know, if you're a golfer and we're showing you a ski resort, kind of a disconnect, right? So there's opportunities to refine even that. But but in answer to your question, it's data. It's just not even close. And and where we used to hire brilliant creatively minded people. Now it's the other end of the spectrum entirely, right? Data scientists and um, stat jockeys that that still understand the contribution they make in the broader context of marketing uh, and in communication, but but see it in a very different world than, than certainly I grew up seeing. I get what you're saying, but I still feel, and I, knew, I, I love how you know me because you do give me information and ideas exactly when I need them. So you've done a really good job personalizing for me and it's not creepy at all but you do for a big company have a very coherent feeling to you your creative i think is consistent it's beautiful it's on target so you seem to be balancing this creative and data or if you will branded performance i don't love those words you're managing that really well how do you do that 
Well, you know, some of this is is a benefit, candidly, I think, of duration and longevity, because if the average, I, you'd know better than I would, a CMO used to be 23 months. It's probably less now. It's about the ter- same. It's about is the it? same now. Okay. Yeah. In a role. And, and it's kind of like a coach at a, at a college or a pro thing. What type of continuity could you ever hope to achieve if you're churning leaders or other members of the team? And there's life events. There's people progressing, getting promoted, what have you, moving but what type of continuity could you ever hope to have if every 23 months there was a fundamental shift of leadership? In fact, I think part of, you know, in answer to your question, and again, your generous remarks, what's helped Delta was literally the merger of these two things, marketing with corporate communications. They're fundamentally different professional disciplines occupied by fundamentally different professionals here. But the idea that, that Delta needs to represent one thing in the mind of our customers, in the mind and in the hearts of our employees, and how you narrow all of these other disparate words, phrases, you know, thoughts, and get it into a common thought around the, the power of human connection and empathy and this climb, this unending striving to be better than we were yesterday. I think for us, is we found to be unifying and, and sustainable. When you think about keep climbing at the time, <laughs> we wrote that line with Wyden and Kennedy wrote the line, but, but we all came together to say, yeah, it's that is we were digging out of a hole right after the financial crisis in Delta in chapter 11. So keep climbing was dig out of the hole, climb out of the hole. Then it's like, okay, we're out of the hole. We're out of chapter 11. We're in the mix and scrapping with these other airlines in the United States, which thankfully the climb and the operational excellence and the level of service our frontline people delivered allowed us to not only differentiate, but separate ourselves positively from that gap. And we now have a yield premium and share premium relative to the industry. But then you have international carriers, whether it's Emirates or Etihad or some of these airlines that are state sponsored and have got different economic equations. I don't think any of us knew 15 years ago when that line was being discussed that that it would mean all of those things. But that's the beautiful thing about language and continuity is if we had had four CMOs in the, well, eight in the time we could have mm-hmm. had, right? You think they would have been stuck with that line or had stayed with that positioning and even that thought process? Hell no, they, they would have changed. So, you know, we've changed CEOs in that amount of time and not changed that line because I think people come to understand the, the unifying power of consistency and continuity over time. What are you most proud of in that 14-year tenure? The team here. I, I, I could, <laughs> I'm in the process of running a bunch of races around the United States. I have this idea of running a half marathon or a full marathon in all 50 states. And uh, in Wyoming, in a couple of weeks, I'll be doing 48. I could drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow, and this place would not miss a beat. We have got talented leaders up and down at all different stages of their career, domestically, internationally, in each of the disciplines that I mentioned. Uh, and thankfully, we, we do. It makes my job considerably easier when you're trying to just get them the tools and the resources they need. But I'm, I'm most proud of the team that will take this brand forward uh, whenever it is that uh, Ed tires of me in this role or the board does. And, and he or I uh, or others are not here because we've got uh, an enormous amount of bench strength behind us. I want to talk about your career path before moving to the creative brief. You studied advertising as an undergrad at Georgia. and you love the lifestyle of uh, Darren on Bewitched. So yeah. <laughs> it was probably a little more, probably a little more to it than that. But as a kid in his late teens, early twenties, you like that lifestyle. You thought it looked pretty cool. Is there anything else that attracted you to that line of business to start your career? Well, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I have to admit, like in my 20s, it was about like the Mont Blanc pen and the Armani suit and a bunch <laughs> of crap that doesn't. I mean, it's you're just so lost. You have no clue yeah. what, what really matters. Right. And and but one thing that always fascinated me about this discipline, communications. Right. And politics is, has been fascinating to watch for this reason is there really is a right answer and, and a solution to absolutely everything in comps, right? That's not always the case in execution, but in communications, there's always a, oh, if I had just said it this way, right? We all go to bed at night saying, damn it, I wish I had thought it and said this or said that in this interview or this, whatever it would be. So I've always been compelled by the power of communications as a persuasive tool um, and, and to use just two different political dynamics, right? Reagan in 80, yes, well, Obama, yes, we can, hope inspiration. Reagan talking about the best of America was resident in Americans. That's a Democratic and a Republican example. By the way, crafted by incredible communications professionals Mm -hmm. that were supportive of them. But it's indicative. I mean, what we're watching right now with gun violence, what we're watching right now with COVID and and varying inequities in the healthcare response uh, and, and access to those things, so whether it is racism uh, as we approach Juneteenth it, it, or any of these other things, to me, the hope is evident in the fact that communication can, the, the ideas compellingly and persuasively presented have the ability to change these situations, right? I don't know what the right answer is in Russia and Ukraine, and God knows we need one. But there, there's something that if said properly or listened to more definitively, unless just everybody involved is insane, which could very well damn well be the case. Well, not everybody, one, one person in particular, um, is, is, is an opportunity. And I just think that's amazing because what else would ever give you that much hope that, well, it just communications well said could persuade somebody to quit viewing something with hatred or mistrust mm-hmm. or fear and really see it to be something quite different. And I think a lot of brands are, are onto that uh, and are trying to bring that to life. And I think that's, that to me, you know, in answer to your question, is something I've always found compelling. What compelled you to jump to the client side back in the early 90s when you went to Delta? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I never thought I would leave an ad agency, and I certainly didn't think I'd leave BBDO. BBDO was amazing, creatively driven. Phil Dusenberry was there while I was mm-hmm. there. I mean, my God, Alan Rosenshine and the roll-up of, of Omnicom. Um, incredible talent and incredible work. Uh, just so proud of, of all of that. But the, the client at the time uh, contacted me and said, would you ever consider working for Delta? And it was right after Delta's acquisition of Pan Am. And so my team at BBDO was responsible for introducing Delta outside the United States with all of the acquisition of the Pan Am assets after Lockerbie, if you remember that transaction oh, yeah. and the tragedy yep. of, of that. Yep. Uh, and it went well enough that Delta was nice enough to say, hey, you know, do you want to come over here and run international marketing or advertising at the time for, for Delta? How the hell do you turn that down, right? I mean, you can only go into a client meeting so many times as an agency person and recommend what ought to get done before you realize that you have no power, right? The client has all the power. And I remember at the time thinking, this will be a cakewalk. All I've got to do is go to the client side and then say yes to everything that BBDO was recommending, right? Just don't be an idiot. Just say yes to all these brilliant things that we were taking over there all the time. Um, it's obviously much more complicated than that. You go to the client side and you realize what an agency spends some of its time thinking 
you spend 24 seven thinking about, and those very different things. Although I do think the best clients are former agency people and the best agency people are former clients. Mm -hmm. You see a lot more movement from agency to client, at least in my experience, than you do the other way for that reason. Uh, But I do think there's an opportunity there. And I I do think when you see crappy clients, they tend to have no understanding of how an ad agency works and, and perhaps vice versa. But when Delta offered me the opportunity, uh, I just saw such all these qualities we're talking about, this service mindset, um, you know, and I didn't know I would be giving up at the time as much of the creative aspect of my life that so drew me to to advertising, because so much more of it is about strategy and and other forms of communications than necessarily advertising at the time. Uh, but it was a, a phenomenal trade-off and, and offered the opportunity to do it again. I'd do it the exact same way. What was the biggest adjustment you had to make? Moving from Apple computers to IBM crap <laughs> that uh, was uh, in, in the early 1990s, it was like yeah. truly programming. And, you know, the, the two bad grades I got at the University of Georgia were both in math and that kind of stuff, statistics. I'm an absolute idiot when it comes to those things, but other stuff I could, could could perform well on. And Apple made some of that so easy. And at the time in 1992, which is when I joined Delta, um, the IBM stuff we had here, which I'm sure then was outdated because airlines tend to go down the demand curve pretty far in terms of automation, at least we did then, uh, made for a tough transition. But uh, I loved it because for all the reasons I mentioned is on the client side, you had so much more of an ability to drive toward an outcome and a, and a change versus the agency that just felt like a lot of process. All right, Tim, we're going to move into the creator brief. And the first question is Delta turns 100 in three years. Are you going to have a party? Yeah, I think we try to have a party here on a fairly regular basis. Uh, okay. We will have a, we will have a huge party, um, you know, and for a host of reasons. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the spirit of Delta, you may know the story in 1982, the employees of the company bought a 767 for the company. That will be 40 years this December, uh, 40 years old. And it's sitting about 100 yards from me in our museum right behind uh, where these offices are. And so we will do a huge event uh, sometime this fall and winter for that uh, and an even larger one for the 100th. We have so many retirees, so many uh, former employees people who selflessly have uh, have allowed this company to be what it is. And uh, yeah, we, we need everybody to come back and share in the 100th for sure. Because a lot of airline brands, as you well know, don't exist anymore. And they were pretty prominent in their day as well. Okay. Best campaign or initiative that you have been a part of in this 30 plus year career? Wow. Um, initiative without doubt, uh, efforts to ensure that, that the Delta employees feel celebrated. Um, we just completed a lot of work around the Beijing Olympics, and uh, a big part of what we tapped into there was the same sacrifice, the same uh, purpose, the same hard work, and, and giving up of other things to allow for success uh, that's evident in an Olympic or a Paralympic athlete uh, is so evident in the, in the people here um, and, and did a lot with that, that a lot of other brands would be so much more focused on the external. And Lord knows we were focused externally as well. But I think getting back to what you, you started with here, um, 51% of any ad we create is targeted to the 78,000 employees of, co- of the company, regardless of where it appears, right? It could be on NBC's coverage of the Olympics and it being addressed to a consumer audience. But when I'm looking at the creative ideas and we're talking through different strategies, I always look for if I'm a gate agent, if I'm a technical operations AMT, a maintenance technician, if I'm a res agent in Singapore, do I feel celebrated, recognized, acknowledged in that? And um, you know the answers, 
you know the work is right for this company. There's a lot of brilliant work that is brilliant, but it's not necessarily brilliant for Delta. You know it's brilliant for Delta when you see any employee's ability to see themselves reflected in that because there's an inherent humanity and a, and a service culture and a hard work. And it just, I always tell people, we're like, we're plow horses. We're not thoroughbreds. We're not show horses. We're, we're plow horses. There's a bunch of grinders here. This isn't filled with Harvard and Princeton and Yale blue bloods, and maybe we'd be better if some were. This is filled with, a, you know, Ed went to St. Bonaventures, right? I mean, just people who were way outpunded their coverage and have done remarkable things just through their own perseverance. And, and I think that same feeling is evident when, when people do the things we do and the way in which we do it collectively, because everybody feels a part of something bigger in, in that way. Most influential business mentor in your career? Wow. Um, I get to watch Ed, and this is going to sound like a patronizing answer, and, and maybe it is, but it's equally true. Um, to, to take out the center seats during COVID, we were losing $100 million a day. <laughs> it don't take many days before that adds up into serious problems, right? Even for a company of our size. And during that, he made the choice to keep the center seats blocked to enable people to be distant from each other, six foot, you know, to the extent that we could possibly pull that off in the construct of a plane. And by the way, in doing so was as focused on flight attendants, pilots, and the people who serve those customers as the customers themselves. He did similarly when we said our values are not for sale with the NRA and lost $48 million of a tax benefit here in the state of Georgia. Uh, and he makes decisions like that all the time. Um, and we had an issue a number of years ago. I think we had several tornadoes rip through Atlanta. We had an electrical outage and we caused people all kinds of trouble. And we were, we were in a meeting one day talking about the service recovery, which is code for how much we're going to bribe y'all with in terms of pay you for the suffering that we've enacted upon you and try to continue to have your loyalty to Delta. And we're in there with a bunch of mathematical calculations and sensitivity analysis around what we've said to Wall Street and everything else. And Ed wasn't in there during that, but he walked in toward the end of it. And I won't use the colorful language, but he said, I don't give a rat's what it's going to cost. Do the right thing for the customer. Swear to God, that's what he said. That's how he said it. And it came at the end of a meeting. And everybody in there just, it, only he could say that, right? The, the leader setting a tone to just say, you know, everybody else was concerned about a lot of other things that, of which a part were the customer. His entire focus was what's right for the customer. Um, and that's a former CFO. Right, that that he is he's special. Uh, Frank Blake is a, is another one. Frank Blake sat us down early on in the in the span of COVID, and said, I forget the exact quote, and it was from a, a literary reference, uh, I think, but it was the the wounds you're experiencing today will be the scars you brag about to people tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and he's so kind and so understated. You know, he's he's a perfect Delta guy. David Taylor uh, from yeah. P and G. We're so yeah. fortunate to have him on our board. That you just know them, like you could like rattle off a bunch of names and say Delta, not Delta, right? David Taylor's a great Delta name um, for all those reasons, right? Just people who, through their own kindness and, and humanity, have somehow risen to these stratospheric levels, the likes of which nobody probably ever set out to achieve, but nonetheless organizationally uh, occurred because of their human qualities and them placing the interests of people before uh, maybe the P&L. Most inspiring person in your life? My wife, without doubt. She's on the board of directors of the Jane Goodall Institute, daily does things that matter in terms of saving the planet, saving our youth for tomorrow, educating and informing kids about what they can do in their own communities to, to serve 
others. She is the most ethical, the most moral uh, person I know. And to, we have two sons, 26 and 23, and to see who they are and who they've become and to see the qualities in her that are now evident in them, without doubt, my wife. It's a good one to end on, Tim, but I'll give you the last <laughs> word. You, any questions for one of your most loyal customers? What could we be doing to better serve you? What uh, What else do you see next in uh, in need of our? I Q knew you'd us? ask that. I knew because that's who you are and that's who your company is. You do such a great job. The things I would love you to have more influence on are the things that surround you. When I'm with your people and in your planes, I feel great. There are other parts of travel which are not as great. So I do, and you know, of course, that's probably out of your scope. But, but gosh, no, I think you're always trying harder. What can I say? You're always trying to be better. Your people are wonderful. Everything you're doing, keep keep doing what you're doing with your people, because Thank that's you your differentiator. It. And I'm not saying that to be patronizing. I really do say you're one of the brands that I really admire in this world. And my whole family are frequent flyers, and they're all Delta people. Well, thank you for that. I I will share. I mean, there's 78,000 people here who, A, don't take that for granted, but but B, will benefit greatly from hearing uh, your words, and I will see that they become aware of them. This is a humbling business. Uh, you know, whether it is weather, air traffic control, COVID, all these circumstances beyond our control, what you can do is be your authentic best and genuinely care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yep, and then, that's what I feel. Yeah, that's that's our hope. Keep your Biscoff crackers and expand your scope. <laughs> that's all right, <laughs> that's my good. parting advice. Great, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. This has been wonderful. Marvelous. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me and uh, my very best to you. I hope I get to see you in person soon. That was my conversation with Tim Mapes of Delta. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is take care of your people first and they will take care of your customers. Even when Tim is looking at ad campaigns, he's thinking about how this will land with his employees. This was a masterclass in how to treat your people so that they bring your purpose to life with your customers. Second takeaway This guy is a great communicator. Lots of lessons about how to communicate effectively. His first key, know your audience. Know what's on their mind. Know what they're worried about. Know what they're happy about. Really understand your audience. That will help you be a great communicator and also help you with the nervousness everyone has when they're communicating. Third takeaway, do the right thing always for employees and customers, especially in times of difficulty. The stories that Tim told about his CEO, who is to him his most influential business mentor in his life, about his CEO doing the right thing for the customer and simplifying things to always put employees and customers first. And bonus takeaway number four, when I asked him about the most inspiring person in his life, he spoke about his wife and he spoke about his wife in such a beautiful way. There was a nice lesson in here about a happy, wonderful, loving relationship. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.